when you can preach Jesus Christ crucified, when you can preach Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, when you can preach Jesus Christ gospel, when you can preach his law, his heaven, his hell, in downtown Portland, you know that the door for the gospel is still open. You know that God has not shut the door. You know that we should not be cowering in these United States of America. We should be pressing in. We should not be running from our cities and from liberal states, God-hating states. We should be pressing in with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live in the most atheist, God-hating city in America. And yet the gospel reigned on the streets yesterday. And God's saints were blessed. Two Christians were shoving money into our hands. Now, I didn't take it. Joe did. He tried not to, but the man was insistent, and it went into the offering plate today. And uh, praise God for that. He was so blessed with the gospel being preached in Portland, he, he just had to help it. He had to aid it. And praise God for that. And the dear lady, I dissuaded, but, but she said, thank you, thank you. This is such a blessing. You've made my day. But we didn't make her day. Christ did. Christ sent us to minister the gospel for the lost, but to encourage the found as well, to strengthen them. And when they see brothers and sisters standing in the heart of Portland preaching Christ, it strengthens them. It encourages them. And sadly, of course, there are many Hail Satans in response to the name of Jesus and His glorious gospel. But Satan did not win the day the gospel did. And some of those Hail Satans kept coming by again and again. You know why? Because their heart was pricked. And one of them stopped after going, coming by four or five times. He stopped and was going to engage me. He wanted to bring debate, which I welcomed. But a man who had been listening for some time to the gospel got up and pushed him out of the way. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I guess we won't have a debate. Debate's healthy. The, the people love to hear it, right? I wanted to bring his best shot. That's okay. But the Lord blessed us. No, no issue with the authorities. No violence, just sweetness. And that's downtown Portland. Over at the MLK Planned Parenthood, sweet time there, preaching Christ, preaching God's law. You shall not murder, seeking to rescue the unborn. Don't know that any babies were rescued. I know that all the babies that were there in their mother's wombs were at least loved by us and defended by us. I know the gospel went forth and it will not return void. And some of those folks will very likely one day bend their knee to Christ. And, and that day, yesterday, that dark day, they went to the abortion clinic will be part of God's amazing grace in their souls. And they will know how kind God was to them on that dark day. And so that's a beautiful thing. I also know that despite the lies that are prevalent all around us about the black community rising up against the white man and out of the oppression that we've placed them under, all this woke deception, the black community welcomed us. The black community honked, waved, praised God, thanked us. You know who was angry at us at the MLK, Martin Luther King Boulevard, Planned Parenthood? You know who was angry? Young, woke, white man and woman. That's who's behind the whole BLM thing, by and large, is young communists, young God-haters, the prevailing, nearly 100% of the response from the black community yesterday was positive, was supportive, was praise God. I got to share the gospel with an elderly black gentleman I've shared the gospel with before, actually, but he was scooting along in a wheelchair with one foot backwards. That's how he gets around. And he had a big can of beer sitting behind him in the wheelchair, 11 a.m. And I said, sir, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And he said, well, I sure hope so. He said, but, but those women. And the man's 70 years old in a wheelchair, scooting backwards. And he pointed to, but maybe those women might keep him out of heaven. His conscience made him aware of his sin. I have no idea what he's referencing, right? How much sin can he be in at 70 scooting backwards in the wheelchair? I, I don't know, but, but he knows, and his conscience knows. And so I addressed that, and I thanked him for his honesty. And and I said, you know, you're, you're right. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, but you can repent by the grace of God, sir. Confess Christ as Lord and be saved. He took a tract. We had a brief conversation. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Anyway, that's a snapshot of our day yesterday and uh, a snapshot of what we'll experience two weeks from now, not next Saturday, but the Saturday after. We'll be out all day long. Welcome you to join us. It'll be a blessing. Let's pray and open the Word of God. Father, we thank you for what you are doing in our fair city, Lord. We thank you that you have 
a number of people. We don't know the number. Maybe a million. Maybe a hundred thousand. Maybe a thousand. Maybe just one precious soul that, Lord, I'm confident there's a great many more that Christ has died for, that Christ has pronounced to tell us die, it is finished over, that His blood was shed for, and they will be redeemed, they will be washed, they will confess Christ as Lord, they will be your children forever in a new heavens and new earth in which only righteousness dwells. But Lord, you have a means of salvation as faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? So Lord, send us forth boldly. And may we not cower. May we not be fearful. Uh, May we not give up. May we not cut and run and try to find some safe place in the earth. May we press in for Christ and His glory and the redemption of sinners. May we press in for Your honor and glory as You sent Your Son to save sinners. And He did His work, and now He's left us in the power of Your Spirit to do our work, to go with feet shod at the preparation of the gospel of peace, and what a joy and privilege it is, Lord. Bless, I pray, in two weeks, a great day of outreach with our brother Anthony and his wife and his son and some of these dear saints here, Father. Open a door, once again, that no man can shut, that no worshiper of the devil hailing Satan can shut. The door is open. May we go through it, Lord, boldly, faithfully, lovingly. And Father, now as we open your word, we pray you teach us from on high. You instruct us. You conform us to the image of your Son for your glory. We pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13. I announced long, so we'll have to move quickly here. You have to think fast, hear fast, get sanctified fast. So we're jumping back into Genesis chapter 13. We've beheld in the previous weeks Abraham's wealth that God lavished upon him, his material wealth, his spiritual wealth. We beheld Abraham's wisdom and his kindness and being a peacemaker with Lot in verses uh, verses 8 down through 9. And now we pick up with Lot's response and the contrast of Lot and Abraham. And the title of this message is Lot's Carnal Ambition and Resulting Poverty. So in contrast to Abraham's material and spiritual wealth, We find here Lot's carnal ambition and resulting poverty. In contrast to Abraham's generosity, for God told Abraham, I give you all this land. It was officially deeded over to Abraham by God. And yet when it came time for Lot and Abraham's herds and servants to separate because there simply was not enough land, enough water to support them all, Abraham graciously said, you take whatever you want. You go in whatever direction you desire. You go east, I'll go west. You go north, I'll go south. And Lot made his fateful choice. We pick up here in verse 10. Read with me there. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Important footnote there. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Lot's carnal ambition and resulting poverty. Now we'll come back to those verses, but I want to do a quick recap of God's blessing of material wealth upon Abraham and the biblical view of wealth in general. Again, in Genesis 12, we have the Abrahamic covenant, God making covenant with Abraham. In verse 2, he said, I will bless you. And of course, 
Foremost, we look to and consider the eternal blessing of God upon Abraham and all his descendants. But there is also the temporal blessing. There is the material wealth that God blessed him with. He had a spiritual and a practical blessing given to him in this covenant and realized in his life and in eternity. And we find in Genesis 24, 34, Abraham's servant some years later giving this testimony regarding God's blessings on his master. So the servant said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly. The Lord has blessed my master greatly. And he has become great. And he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants and camels and donkeys. Contrary to the communist sentiments growing in our society, material wealth is not innately evil. And God lavishes it upon men and women unequally. Once again, contrary to the prevailing ideas, the social justice in our poverty, which is really just communism in disguise that would be that would bring upon us enforced equality, meaning we're going to take all you have and the state will dole it out evenly. Of course, if the state does that, there will be those that just take it, don't work, squander it, and there'll be those that receive it and go back to work like they were always working before and grow it. And then the state will have to take it again, which eventually does what? Takes your drive and will and desire to work and achieve Communism doesn't work. It's a proven, historic, and present reality in the world that it doesn't work. But we have congressmen and representatives and people in the White House singing its glories because they were bought and paid for by communist China some time ago. And because the universities they have supported and they have attended, as well as now are very grade schools and high schools have been teaching these lies. The lies of Karl Marx. They come in disguise in the form of woke social justice dogma, BLM dogma. Wealth is not something outside of Scripture. The Word of God speaks to it. The Word of God speaks to it. And it says here in a narrative passage that God blessed him greatly. God gave him flocks and herds, silver and gold. Now Proverbs 23 verse 4 and 5, of course, says do not overwork to be rich, right? Don't sacrifice righteousness. Don't sacrifice your family. Don't sacrifice your health to become rich. And yet we are to work as unto the Lord. We're to work to provide for our families, of course, and provide for the advancement of the gospel in the earth. But we're to work as unto the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and let God decide to what level we are enriched, to what level we are advanced in position, in authority, and in wealth. Do not overwork to become rich, says Proverbs 23, 4, and 5. But if you read the rest of Proverbs, oh, it commends working, working. Verse 5, Proverbs 23, 5, Will you set your eyes on that which is not for riches? Certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. In contrast, Proverbs 24, 3 says, Through wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. So we interpret Scripture with Scripture. The communist would grab on to Proverbs 23, 4, and 5 and say, Look, you work for the state. You work for the neighbor in a communist sense. But the biblicist would grab onto both and say, look, you work for the glory of God. You work for the love of family and neighbor. And you let God decide what level of material wealth will be realized out of that work because wealth is not innately evil. No, no, no. The love of wealth is evil, not wealth. The wisdom a house is built, and that's seen as a good thing. By understanding it is established, and that's a good thing. By knowledge the rooms are filled, and that's a good thing, with all precious and pleasant riches. Proverbs 24, 3 through 4. And then we have Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I request of you. This is a plea to God. Two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you. 
and say, who is the Lord, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. A healthy prayer, crying out to God, that Lord, let me not be so rich that I deny you, that I, be, that I uh, experience the Nebuchadnezzar complex. Look what I have created, and let me not be so poor that I become a thief. Lord, let me have the, whatever wealth would be healthy for me and would allow me to most glorify you. And that's going to be different person by person. But that's a very healthy prayer. We learned in Ecclesiastes 5 that wealth, again, is not innately evil. In fact, even enjoying wealth is not evil. The Lord has given it and He has commended enjoying it, not selfishly. But Ecclesiastes 5.18 says, Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him. For it is his heritage, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. There are those who lack wealth, who judge the wealthy to be innately wicked, simply for possessing wealth. And that is a growing sentiment as the church itself gets woke as social justice lies break into the church. It's not just a sentiment in the communist nations of the world or the, the communist hearts growing in the chests of our people as they're infected with this dogma. It's coming into the church. And it's a lie. It's a lie. Ecclesiastes clearly says wealth is a gift from God and it can be enjoyed. Now here is a balancing truth from 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19 once again where it does commend enjoying the wealth that God gives, but it gives certain parameters to that enjoyment of the wealth that God gives. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. So it doesn't say command them to give up their wealth, to divest themselves of all their wealth, to take vows of poverty, and to whip themselves in a corner. It doesn't say that. It says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to be proud. Why? Because wealth can make us proud as if it was our power that gave us such wealth. Our powers of intellect, our powers of work ethic, our powers of strength. When our work ethic, our wits, and our strength are all gifts from God. And the opportunity to use our wits, our strength, that's a gift from God. So it's all a gift from God. And so we give Him the praise what he has lavished on us in his kindness. So command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches. And that's a key point. We don't trust in riches. What do we trust in? God. Not riches. God. But in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy, it says. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. We should enjoy with our wealth, sharing. We should enjoy with our wealth the opportunity to bless others. And thus, storing up, verse 19, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now, that's not throwing money at panhandlers who are living sinful lifestyles, shooting drugs into their veins and drinking to the point of a stupor in order to go back to the corner the next day to live an autonomous life free of any boss, free of anyone saying, why weren't you here at eight? And why did you clock out before five? Free of any drug tests. No, that is aiding and abetting their own destruction. Now, there are ministries that help them actually get out of that, good ministries, and that if they'll conform to some structure, right, structure including not using and working toward a future where they will be productive to provide for themselves and others. Now, that's actually ministering to those folks. But most often, folks just throw money at that, and it only perpetuates their sin and their self-destruction. It's a waste of money at best. It's hatred toward them at worst because it's harming them. Now, there are true destitute people in the world, and there are ministries that help them find opportunities, opportunities for food, opportunities for medicine, opportunities for education, opportunities to gain occupation and to be trained for that. And those are great ministries. Uh, and so we, we want to help those. And of course, the greatest ministry and the most fundamental thing the Bible speaks of giving to is the ministry of the gospel. 
Because you can teach, you can give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day. You can teach a man to fish and he'll eat for life. But if you don't bring him to the fisher of men, Jesus Christ, as a servant of the gospel, then should they live that long life as a great fisherman, it'll be a long life of sin. And they'll die in their sin and go to hell. And you'll not have helped them at all. And so if we're going to teach men to fish, great, but do it in the name of Jesus with the gospel of Jesus going forth. If you're going to give a fish, great, but do it with the gospel in the name of Jesus that their soul might be redeemed by the fisher of men. So that's a quick recap of God's blessing and material wealth upon Abraham and a quick recap of a biblical view of wealth in general and the contending views of this world and the primary primary contender in the world is communism. It is anti-God, it's anti-Christ, it's anti-biblical, and it's anti-wealth. It would impoverish everyone equally, except for those at the top, who will rule ruthlessly and enjoy the wealth they've stolen from the people. Look around at the communist nations of the world. That's what's going on. And the, the people, they're lining up with their wheelbarrows of worthless cash trying to buy bread. That's communism. Speak truth about the evil of communism. Now is the time. Now is the time. Your neighbor's getting swept up with it. Your neighbor's children in these communist institutions they call elementary, middle, and high schools and colleges, they're being trained to be the next hammer and sickle army. These young people, if they're not down in Portland with a hammer and sickle painted on their black combat equipment, they look down there to those people as their heroes. Those Antifa rioters, that Antifa army is a communist army with hammer and sickle adorned on all their equipment and clothing. The BLM army is a communist army. And the young generation around here, if you're not aware, they look to that and they like it. They applaud it. And they They consider, or maybe even do at times, join in. So Lot's carnal ambition and resulting poverty. A quick recap of wealth, and now back to Lot's carnal ambition and the terrible, terrible results. Matthew Henry says of this text, We have here the choice that Lot made when he parted from Abram. Upon this occasion, one would have expected that he should have expressed an unwillingness to part from Abram, and that at least... He should have done it with reluctancy. That he should have been so civil as to have remitted the choice back again to Abram. No, Abram, you choose. But we find not any instance of deference or respect to his uncle and the whole management. Abram, having offered him the choice without compliment, he accepted and made his election. Passion and selfishness make men rude. Now in the choice which Lot made, we may observe how much he had an eye for the goodness of the land. Back in verse 10, Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. If you are herdsmen, if your primary trade is as herdsmen, then water is key. He found the most plush and watered land, and he said, I'll take that. And this is the nephew taking the choice land. The choice land that the nephew knows God has deeded over to his uncle. Nevertheless, without hesitation, he takes that. You must know also, remember, that Lot's relative wealth had been gained in the shadow of Abram. He had received tremendous blessing by tagging along with Uncle Abram. And yet, when the opportunity came, he tried to assert himself and to rise to the top over Abram by taking the choice land that actually belonged to his uncle. How much he had an eye to the goodness of the land. He beheld all the plain of the Jordan, the flat country in which Sodom stood, that it was admirably well watered everywhere, and perhaps the strife had been about water, which made him particularly fond of that convenience. And so Lot chose all that plain. That valley, which was like the Garden of Eden itself, the Scripture says. Again, verse 10, like the Garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. And so it's like the Garden of Eden, and it's like the choice and richest land in all of Egypt. That's what he chose for himself. Does that seem a wee bit presumptuous? You know, if you walk into someone's house and they say, oh, sit wherever you like. If you kick back in the easy chair, the man of the house's easy chair, would, would that perhaps be a bit presumptuous? 
Now, if they invite you and insist, you know, sure. But, you know, I'm not going to do it. The Bible even warns against that, taking the best seat, right? And it's not just about the seat. There's all sorts of situations where you're taking the best seat. Now, if the Lord ordains it and he sets you there through whatever means, then by all means, sit there. But we're not looking for that. We're not after that. We don't presume upon that. So Lot did not display this gracious disposition, this humble disposition, but rather a proud disposition and a greedy disposition. Ah, I'm going to take hold of that land, the best portion of land. And what was to come of it? What's going to come of this? Hmm. Why the next news we hear of him is that he is in briars among them. He is carried captive. While he lived among them and vexed his righteous soul with their conversation and never had a good day with them till at last God fired the town over his head and forced him to the mountain for safety who chose the plain for wealth and pleasure. He chose the plain and the lush plain for wealth and pleasure and he ends up driven to the mountain hiding out trying to survive. How sad. The commentator Matthew Henry goes on, sensual choices are sinful choices and seldom speed well. Those who in choosing relations, callings, dwellings, or settlements are guided and governed by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, and consult not the interest of their souls and their religion, cannot expect God's presence with them, nor his blessing upon them, but are commonly disappointed even that that which they principally aimed at and miss of that which they promised themselves satisfaction in. In all of our choices, this principle should overrule us. That is best for us, which is best for our souls. Is it wrong to move toward a sinful city? Does anyone know of a city that's not sinful? What are cities full of? People. And what are people? Sinners. You guys cut to the chase. Yeah. Sinners, yes, sinners. So every city is sinful. It's just to how, you know, what level? How sinful is it? Is it Vegas? Sin city? By declaration? Is it Portland? Keep Portland weird? A city that boasts of being the most atheist city in the nation? Is it sinful to move to Portland? Or even the outskirts where most of us live? Is it sinful? Well, yes, if you move there like a lot. And no, it's completely righteous and good and holy if you move or live there to magnify Christ. Yes, to make a living and to experience whatever relative level of wealth God would bless you with. But foremost, you live there to magnify Christ. What is in the city? People. Sinners. What do sinners need? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Should we abandon the city? Should we abandon sinners? Oh, it's a really terrible city. That city's as bad as Nineveh. No righteous Christian would ever go there. No true God-loving soul would want to live there. It's as bad as Nineveh. Who would say that? Jonah? Hard-hearted men and women with the heart of Jonah? No, Lord, I'll not go there. Because if I go there and preach, you'll have grace on them. That was Jonah's heart and words, which are rather insane. But there are People that feel much that same way about our fair city. I don't want to waste my life safely in Idaho or Texas. And there are sinners in Idaho and Texas and they need the gospel. But guess what? There's a whole lot of Christians there. I want to live right here on the front lines, preaching Christ. Oh, we could all run and make some little, you know, Christian utopian society on some mountain somewhere, some valley, some hidden valley, the Shenandoah Valley, Christian retreat center where we've retreated and hid out and refused to obey Jesus Christ who said, go therefore and make disciples. You know, he gave that command and the early church went therefore and they turned their city upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ and they filled the world with the doctrine of Christ, the known world. Which is why we here today on the other side of the world have the doctrine of Christ, the gospel of Christ. We cannot retreat because the enemy is amongst us. I mentioned in Sunday school uh, this reality. What if the reformers would have just kept hiding and retreating? There never would have been a reformation. The dark ages would have continued perpetually. Rome and its false gospel would have continued to damn billions to hell. But the reformers discovered the gospel. Martin Luther and the others studied the scriptures and found that the just shall live 
by faith. Not by sacrament. Not by the, the hand of the priest or by the will of the Pope or the decree or declaration of the Pope or the church or his bishops. But the just shall live by faith. Faith in Christ who has finished his work. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone, and not sacrament. Not the decree of a priest. You are forgiven. Your sins are absolved. No, the decree of Christ. And so we go, therefore. It would have been completely right for Sodom to be Lot's aim if he said, Abram, I desire to go to Sodom because they know not our God. The God who has revealed himself to us. The God of Abraham. The God who made his covenant with you. And I would go there that they might know his name. But no, 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 no. He set his eyes on that water and that lush grass and the prosperity it would bring. And the name of Yahweh was, if anything, at all, a secondary issue, tertiary, or a non-issue. A non-issue. Lot lost sight of the fact that he received all the material wealth that he had in relationship to Abram and Abram's relationship with Yahweh. And he set off on his own course, and it does not appear in any way that it, it was to honor the Lord or advance the faith in the one true God in the earth. That's Lot's great error. He set his eyes on the earth rather than on God. You can set your eyes on God and go anywhere, anywhere righteously to proclaim Him and advance His kingdom in the earth out of love of God and love of men. But you set your sights on the earth and you'll go hide in the woods out of love of self or you'll go down to the city out of love of self and you'll send it up there too. But it's equally sinful. We've got to set our eyes on the Lord and thus the Lord's will and go where the Lord bids for the Lord's glory. And then it's righteous, right? By all means, go and see and enjoy the things in the earth righteously for the glory of God. Go to Nineveh for the glory of God. And the souls of men. Go to Sodom and Gomorrah for the glory of God and the souls of men. Not alone, not at night, not in certain districts, right? That's madness. But our cities need the gospel of Jesus Christ because the city is where the people are. They're all there massed together. Someone yesterday said, you you can't do that here. You shouldn't be doing that here. I'm a Christian, but you shouldn't be doing that here. You shouldn't be doing that here where hundreds of people are gathered and are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where should we do it? Where no one is? Should we find an empty street somewhere and preach Jesus Christ? Matthew Henry continues, How little he, Lot, considered the wickedness of the inhabitants, but the men of Sodom were indeed wicked. Though all are sinners, yet some are greater sinners than others. The men of Sodom were sinners of the first magnitude. Sinners before the Lord, that is, impudent, daring sinners. They were so to a proverb... Hence we read of those that declare their sin is Sodom, they hide it not, that some sinners are worse for living in a good land, so the Sodomites were, for this was the iniquity of Sodom, pride, fullness of bread, and abundance, and idleness, and all these were supported by the great plenty of their country afforded. You know, we're much in America like Sodom and Gomorrah. America, all this wealth the Lord has lavished on us as a nation, has made us self-loving sinners megalomaniacs, where anything goes, anything that indulges self, anything that pleases self, we're all our own gods. We've become a, a nation of idols, and our idols are the images that we see in our mirrors. It's all about the service of self, the narcissistic glory and service and pleasure of self. How desperately our nation needs the Testimony of the one true God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images nor bow down to them, even and especially that of yourself. You're but a mere mortal. And all these mere mortals and all their rank pride and arrogance, deciding for themselves right and wrong, good and evil, denying God and his standard, his law. Yet, when a little virus comes along, they shut down their entire life for a year and more. They hide perpetually. Because why? Because in reality, they're frail. They're frail. 
and their life can be snuffed out in an instant. That's a reality. But we live in delusion without God. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and they desperately need that truth, which is why we go therefore. And so Lot lifted his eyes. He saw all the plain of the Jordan. It was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. He chose for himself the, the very best land, the very best seat. He chose for himself prosperity without any concern for his uncle or God's covenant with his uncle. I think the appropriate response would have been, uncle, the Lord has made a covenant with you and with your lineage. And so the best of land should be for you. So let's discern for the glory of God and for the furtherance of your lineage that the Lord has promised to bless. Let's discern the best place for that. And that's where you shall go. And I'll separate my herdsmen and my herds from there. That would have been a God-honoring, uncle-honoring, long-term vision plan. Instead, he was very, very short-sighted and self-centered. Proverbs 24.1 would have been very helpful to Lot. It says, Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. Again, Lot just looked at the land and what the land was going to do for him and the prosperity that was going to come. The evil men, well, yeah, they're there, but he had no love for their souls that they might come to know Yahweh. They're going to be there, yeah. He had no concern for his own soul or that of his family that he might be tempted to live like them. As Scripture warns us, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good character. So do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. I do desire to be with evil men in the sense that I draw near to them and share some level of life with them to love them and bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I don't desire to enter into that lifestyle, to adopt their passions and their motives and their convictions or the lack thereof. Proverbs 28, 22 says, A man with an evil eye hastens after riches. Uh Uh-oh, Lot looked around. He saw this plush land. He said, and he ran after it ran after it. He hastened after the riches. And he does not consider that poverty will come upon him. And the worst kind of poverty came upon him. In the end, what is Lot left with? He loses it all. All. It's all gone. Matthew 13, the Lord Jesus says, Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Consider Lot with Abram. Lot was well aware of God's revelation of himself to Abram. Should that have not been a compelling life experience? Even though it wasn't him personally, that's Uncle Abram, which is why he went with Abram to Canaan. And yet now he's lost sight of that glory. He's lost sight of the revelation of God and the plan of God and the covenant that God made. And the word that was revealed unto him is choked out by the deceitfulness of riches represented in this lush and beautiful, well-hydrated land. And his life became unfruitful. Tragically, disastrously unfruitful. 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. You can live godly, work diligently, be contented, and be relatively poor and have great gain. You can live godly, work diligently with contentment, and live a relatively middle-class existence and have great gain. You can live godly, work diligently, and have sweet contentment and peace in your soul, and the Lord can lavish, should He choose, great wealth upon you in that. But the issue is, to walk in godliness, to live for the glory of God, the love of the Lord, the love of neighbor with contentment, and to know that your gain is eternal. It's present in everything that matters, and it's eternal in everything that matters. And whatever level of financial wealth you might gain or lack is really not a big deal. First Timothy 6 7 says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. What did Lot carry out of Sodom? 
Nothing. What will you carry out of this world? Nothing. Part of what I preached in downtown Portland yesterday was the reality that your lifeless hands will soon, soon, life is brief. It's so brief. You're soon going to give up everything you possess, everything. Your lifeless hands will let loose of it all. You're running after all the things that don't matter if you're not running after Christ. Now, you can enjoy those things, but you've got to hold them loosely, right? Those are not the things that matter. The only thing that matters is the glory of God and the eternal souls of men. That's what matters ultimately. And so we brought nothing into this world. It's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich and fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Again, desiring to be diligent, desiring to see the fruit thereof, uh, to bless others, to advance the kingdom, to bless your family. That's different than a sinful desire, a raw, covetous desire to be rich that this is speaking of here. And that's what we find in Lot. Lot desired to be rich. He had no concern for the glory of God, no concern to honor his uncle, no concern for the covenant that God had made and to do all that he could do to see that covenant advanced in the earth that Abram and his lineage would be blessed. 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Oh, if that, if that doesn't describe Lot, it doesn't describe anyone. He was pierced through with many sorrows. He lost every bit of material wealth he sought to gain. Lost it all. He lost his wife who so coveted that material wealth when she knew the wrath of God was coming on it and God was merciful to save them out and rescue them out of there. She looked back. It wasn't just a glance back. Something, why would God turn her to a pillar of salt just for looking back to see what was happening? No, it was a covetous look, I guarantee you, which is why God judged her because she's looking back longingly. Oh, I don't want to leave it because she loved it. And she was turned to a pillar of salt. She died on the spot. And then Lot ends up in the mountains with his daughters who were corrupted with Sodom's sin. Horrific things happen that we'll have to go through in months ahead in more detail, but not today. What an absolute nightmare, all unleashed by this one selfish moment. And once he set on that course, it just continued to snowball. And grow and grow and grow until it consumed him and his family. His offspring that came through that terrible means in that mountain were the enemies of God, the Moabites and the Ammonites. So Lot's offspring become the enemies of Israel. When I titled this, Lot's Carnal Ambition and the Resulting Poverty, you know, the Resulting Disaster. Oh, that we would guard our eye, lest it sinfully hasten after the things of this world. And we pierce ourselves and those that we love through with many sorrows. If you want to jump ahead on your own time, we don't have time today, and I want to preach it when we come to it. Genesis 19 is where you see many of these piercings and sorrows unveiled in Lot's life. Genesis 19. In Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 30, the Lord Jesus warns us of the coming judgment, the coming judgment on mankind globally by pointing us back to Lot. In Luke 17, 20, Jesus says, now when he was, or it says, now when he was asked, By the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor would they say, He is, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days 
of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here, look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part of heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. Now let me hit the pause button. And what Jesus is talking about here is a kingdom that is now and yet to come. So the kingdom is now in you. And that was immediate since he came and since he left the Spirit and the church was born. The kingdom is now spiritually, but the kingdom will come. Christ will rule and reign on the earth. So it's now and later. So he starts initially with now. The kingdom is now. And then he goes to the kingdom that is going to come on earth later. And that's what he's speaking to here in these later verses about the lightning that flashes out of the sky. Verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given a marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So they were living life like it's all normal, it's all fine, there's no God, there's no judgment, there's no need of a Savior, it's all fine. And that's how our nation's living. They're living like the dollar will always have value no matter what they do in Washington, D.C. They're living like our enemies don't really want to destroy us and take what we've got. Like the nature of man has changed. Like like mankind is now basically good. They're living as if ideas don't have consequences. And as if, again, communism is this new brilliant idea that folks have just come up with. And it's going to be fantastic. They're giving away free stuff. Have you heard? Checks for everybody. How long does that last? Oh, you can't even really count it in years. It ends with a crash of everything, which is the intention, the great reset, the great financial devastation of America is the goal, because that's the goal of communism, social justice, equality, equal poverty and suffering for all. That's what is the order of the day. That's what communism has put on the menu for America. But we keep living like everything's fine. They eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But hear me, there's something worse than communism coming. (laughs) It's the wrath of the Almighty. Communism is a temporary judgment on mankind, and it's a judgment. But when Christ comes, there'll be eternal judgment. There'll be eternal judgment. And all this blasphemy, all this sexual immorality, all this gender rebellion, it will all come to an abrupt end. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on that day that Lot went out, look to verse 28, Luke 17, 28. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, somebody remind me in case I forget. Next time we're on the streets, I'm preaching that. If ever there was a text to preach in the street, it is that. If ever there was a text to preach in the Portland Saturday market, It is that where they're buying and selling and enjoying and laughing as if there's no God in heaven, as if there's no hell below to avoid, no heaven above to achieve. And the Lord Jesus says, what's the end of the age going to be like? It's going to be like in the days of Lot when they ate and they drank and they bought and they sold and they planted and they built. But on the day the Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Destruction is coming. Destruction is coming. Everything you know, everything you love will soon be gone. Everyone will stand before the Lord bare in their sins. Everyone who is not in Christ Jesus, robed in His righteousness, Revelation tells us that the very heavens and earth will be gone. They'll be consumed with fire. And it says there will be no place to hide. No place. The earth will give up the dead in it. The sea will give up the dead in it. There'll be a bodily resurrection of the damned. And they will stand before God in their sin. And they will hear, go from me. 
you who practice lawlessness. Be cast out with his weeping and gnashing of teeth. The flame is not quenched where the worm does not die. And they must be warned. If we love them, we must warn them. If we hate them, let's be silent. If we hate them, let's hide out in Idaho or Montana someplace. Go visit. Go fish. Go hunt. Go enjoy it. And then go find some people who are perishing. God may call you to Montana. God does odd things like call people to live in Montana. I know. But don't flee to Montana because you see that safety. If God's calling to Montana, you're, you're going to Montana to preach Christ. You're going to Montana to serve the Lord and magnify Him. Because there's some rancher out in Montana that needs the gospel. And you're going to brave that rifle hanging in the back window of his truck. Let us be warned by the Lord Jesus. Looking to Lot's life and the end thereof, looking to Lot's life and the destruction upon it, looking to Lot's neighbors who who Lot failed to love. They all perished. He did not warn them of the one true God who he knew of. He did not call them to serve him. He lived amongst them for his own benefit with no care for theirs. He lived for his own temporal benefit with no care for his or their eternal benefit. And it ended in a devastating manner, a loss of all that he sought. Lost all his property, all the property he had gained in the shadow of Uncle Abram, he lost. Lost his wife, Lost those wretched son-in-laws. We'll talk about them in weeks ahead. No great loss there. But he should have won them. Instead, he lost them. And for all intents and purposes, lost his daughters. And his descendants became the enemies of the nation of God. That's a really bad choice. May God guard us from choices like that. And should we make them, and we will in some way at some time, may he grant us repentance. May we flee back to the Lord and his covenant with us in Christ Jesus.